All right, well, let's turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 46. <clears throat> Excuse me. Weather does stuff to my voice here, so if I start sounding a little bit like Mickey Mouse a little later, you'll know why. Just don't look for the, horn, the ears, you know, because I won't have them. Anyway, um, we're living in very significant times, folks. We're living in the times of the signs, and we're seeing the signs of the times all around us. If you pay any attention whatsoever with what's going on in the world, starting nationally and then spreading out globally, you realize that the day of Christ is near. And uh, I don't say that just to be sensational. I say that because that's what the Bible says. And uh, you know, it tells us that we're living in, in desperate times, dangerous times, difficult times, perilous times. And uh, as I mentioned the last couple of years, uh, with that focus on 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, first five verses of that particular chapter, the word perilous there has a lot to do with the enemy wanting to weaken the saints. And that is certainly happening in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's happening in, in ways in the church that uh, we never expected to see happen over the many years that the church has been around, of course. But it was predicted that it would be that way, that there, was a, there would be a great falling away in the church. There would be a, an apostasy taking place. And that apostasy is taking place in churches today. They're, they're still churches. They look like churches. They smell like churches, you know, whatever. But, I mean, they, they don't have, they, they've put the, the word of God aside. They're not trusting in the word of God. And this is one of the situations that we're dealing with. So, you know, we, we've been, uh, we've been, it's been our heart's desire to stay faithful to the teaching the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And we'll keep doing that until the Lord, until the Lord Jesus comes. But uh, here in the book of Ezekiel, <clears throat> this, uh, the last nine chapters, chapters 40 to 48, all have to do really with the restoration of Israel. And it is uh, given for the people of Israel to know that God is still going to restore them, that God still loves them, that God is still going to deal with them uh, down through the ages. Now, what does that mean for the church? Well, it's an exciting thing too, because we, uh, we ourselves know that Israel itself as a nation, even today, is the main sign of the end times. The very fact that there's an Israel today in the land is telling us that God is serious about, about his prophecies from the very beginning. And if 30% of the Bible is, is, uh, is prophetic, and that's really just a, a very conservative number uh, when you deal with the prophets and the, the apostles and, and the writings that are uh, uh, that are in the scriptures concerning prophecy in general, there's a lot more than 30% in the scriptures when you, when you get right down to it, you do a more careful study. But because of that, it, it's, it's really something that should stir the hearts and the minds of the, of the believer in Jesus Christ to keep looking up. I, I, I say this all the time and I don't, I don't say it to be you know, funny. I, mean, I say it because that's what Jesus said. He said, keep looking up, lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh. Your redemption draws near, and the Lord can come at any moment. It's an interesting thing. You know, uh, last week I was uh, mentioning that uh, Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord, and, uh, and, and what a, uh, 
what an example of, of a Christian life uh, he was. And today they had him, uh, uh, they had his uh, casket in the, uh, uh, in Washington, and a lot of people, you know, were viewing, uh, because he was such an influence to uh, a number of presidents. But um, I, I, was, I was watching some things on, on the internet and stuff, just kind of listening to what people were saying, and there were people out there saying that, that they were getting visions years ago that if, when, the moment that Billy Graham died, you know, the rapture of the church was going to happen. Well, we're still here, <laughs> so maybe it's a little after, you know, his uh, going home to be with the Lord as a sign or symbol. I don't know where that comes from other than the fact that, uh, you know, he has been quite an influence. And I, I think one of the things that is sad about, uh, about Billy Graham, not, not sad because of him, but, or, or, but sad that, that there's a generation today that doesn't know who he is. And most of us, you know, some of us who grew up in the 50s and 60s, and I know that's ancient, a long time ago, but uh, those, of, <laughs> those of us who grew up in the 50s, 60s, you know, we, whether we listened to him or not, whether we, you know, believed when we heard the gospel message or whatever then, we knew who he was. He was that kind of an influence uh, in our nation. And I don't, we don't see that anymore. So that is somewhat of a sign then that uh, we're getting so close to the coming of the Lord. So, you know, the thing about the fact that, you know, Billy Graham's gone home, he, they, they call him the, the modern Methuselah, you know, because, you know, Methuselah was, a, was the person that when he died, because that's what his name means, when he dies comes, uh, comes a flood, you know, and, and uh, uh, he died, and not too long after that, the flood came, right? And that was back in, of course, in the days of Noah. Uh, so, well, praise the Lord, it wasn't the day that he passed away that, you know, uh, uh, that the rapture ha didn't happen. <laughs> so, anyway, the, the, the point of all of this is to say, you know, we just need to continue to look at the scriptures thoughtfully, prayerfully, and certainly expectantly, because we know Jesus is coming. So this particular section that we're going to finish uh, tonight in, in Ezekiel 46 continues on in the issues of, of proper orderly worship even in the millennial kingdom. In other words, it's a time that has yet to happen, but there's going to be a temple, there's going to be a, a messianic temple, if you will, because Jesus is the one who's going to build it there in Jerusalem. The topography, as we'll see next week, we're even going to get closer into viewing what, uh, you know, the, uh, the topography is going to be totally changed when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, as, as we've already read and seen in, in the book of Zechariah. And all of that's going to change, and, and, and of course we already talked about the, uh, the, the distinctions or the divisions of the land, uh, where the temple is, and, and all of these things. But th this is yet to happen. So again, all of this is to encourage Israel of, of God's restoration, and it's to encourage the church that the Lord's coming soon. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at verses 12. And, and, and again, we're continuing on. We started the first 11 verses last week. Verse 12 says, Now when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering or peace offerings voluntarily unto the Lord, two, uh, three things actually. Remember that the prince is not Jesus. The prince is not David. But it's someone probably from the line of David. Possibly. And we've already talked about the reasons why that is. We'll see one of the reasons tonight. 
the, the second thing, or the two other things, are the words voluntary and voluntarily. That's, that's a stress of something here. It's stressing something. So when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering, or peace offerings voluntarily unto the Lord, doing it from his heart, doing it from his, de from his desire to do it, which is really what every believer should do. Is that, you know, we, uh, we should voluntarily offer our praise and our thanksgiving unto the Lord all the time. It shouldn't be something that we're always told to do. You know, hey, you need to pray, get up and let's praise the Lord. Okay, okay, you know, so. No, it's something we do voluntarily from our heart. And this is what this is saying here. So when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering or peace offerings voluntarily unto the Lord, one shall then open him uh, the gate that looketh toward the east. The gate will be open. We, we talked about this in the first 11 verses as well. And he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. And if you remember how that was done, it was through the priests. Uh, and then he shall go forth, and after he's going forth, one shall shut the gate. So he comes and he offers this uh, offering, and then when he leaves, the gate is shut again. And we talked about the shutting and opening of the gate uh, last time as well. Thou shalt daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. Thou shalt prepare it every morning. And thou shalt prepare a meat offering. And remember that the meat offering is not meat as meat that we know, but it's actually a grain offering. Uh, and thou shalt prepare a meat offering for it every morning, the sixth part of an ephah, and the third part of a hint of oil. We talked about the measurements before. To temper with the fine flour. A meat offering continually by a perpetual ordinance. That's an everlasting ordinance unto the Lord. Thus shall they prepare the lamb and the meat offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering. Now, as I said, we continue with the theme of orderly worship in the Messianic temple during Christ's reign from the city of Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, earlier there were references, as I said, to the East Gate, that it would be shut for six working days, but would be open on the Sabbath and the day of the new moon. Now let me comment just briefly before we close out our study in, in Ezekiel 46 on those uh, two things. As already mentioned in the first eight verses of this chapter, the Sabbath and the observance of the new moon, which is Rosh Kodesh, uh, literally the head of the month or the first of the month, Rosh Kodesh. We, we spent a lot of time talking about, I, I figured this out, I, uh, we... We did the Feast of Israel about two and a half years ago, and about two and a half years ago, almost to the date, uh, did we do the, uh, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. And now, Rosh Kodesh is, of course, every month, there's a celebration of the new month. But uh, it's especially important at the Feast of the Trumpets because that is uh, the, uh, the one feast that, uh, that lines up with the uh, with the rapture of the church. But uh, it's the first part of the month. And so the Sabbath observance and the new moon observance would be part of the worship services commemorated during the millennium. So it's not like the millennium comes and everything changes. No, remember that the Lord made everlasting covenants with Israel, perpetual covenants with Israel, eternal covenants with Israel. 
And that's something that we need to understand about how the Lord deals with us. It's, re it's really the same way, you see. Now for us as believers in Jesus Christ, looking at it from, from our side, it might seem strange or even inappropriate that the Sabbath, which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and I'll show you that in a minute, but that the Sabbath would be observed in the Millennial Kingdom when it is not observed specifically by many churches during the church age in effect under the New Covenant. Really, the church isn't bound to that. Here's the reason why. If you turn to Exodus 31, and even though some will argue, of course, if you go all the way back to the first six days and then the seventh day being the Sabbath, that it's supposed to be a perpetual commemoration for everyone. But I want you to listen to this in Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep. Now he's speaking to the children of Israel. Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign, and notice, a sign between me and you, who's you, children of Israel, throughout your generations, throughout your generations. Now, are, are there, are there uh, children of Israel today? Yeah, there are. And will there be uh, at the, uh, at the millennial, in the millennial kingdom? Of course there will be. Will there be Jews during the tribulation period? Of course, you know, we, Revelation chapter seven and 11, you know, with the 144,000, but that there, there's gonna be a lot more, of course. Israel is at the very center of everything that's going on in the book of Revelation as well. So for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know, or that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify or set you apart. I am the Lord that sets you apart. Now if you go down just a little bit to verses 16 through 18 in the same chapter, it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Notice, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual, there's that word again, perpetual, everlasting, continual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So that's a binding thing with the children of Israel. So therefore you see how it continues on in the millennial kingdom. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of uh, communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tablets of testimony. What are those? The Ten Commandments. Tablets of stone or tables of stone written with the finger of God. And you know, when you see the reference of the finger of God, I have to tell you that has to be the finger of Yeshua. That is the finger of Jesus. Carving out the law on that stone. Well, let, let, let me say by that, those two passages in, in, in Exodus 31, you can't get any more Jewish than that, right? You can't get any more Israel than that. And remember that I said last time that the things observed by the prophet Ezekiel, along with the exiles that were, that were seeing, you know, that as Ezekiel was pouring forth this vision to the exiles there in Babylon, and then, of course, us looking at it as well, 
So the things that are observed here concerning the services in the temple are a very distinctive, uh, they are of a very distinctive Jewish nature and is in no way a picture of Christianity per se. And I did mention though that the only tie-in to all of that for us is the fact that we are now supposed to be the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are to be the temple of God, ourselves, our bodies. But I also mentioned that all of God's covenants would be fulfilled and operating in the Messianic kingdom. I want you to take note of something. Let's go backwards uh, here in Ezekiel to chapter 37. Let's go to chapter 37. And of course, you all know that this is the, uh, the chapter dealing with Israel and the Valley of Dry Bones, the resurrection of the nation of Israel. Uh, if, if, if you will, primarily it is the resurrection of Israel uh, after being dead in the sense of what had taken place in our own time, which was, well, when I say our own time, again, the 20th century, 30s and 40s, with the, um, with the Holocaust. But out of that rose up the nation of Israel. And of course, in 1948, then... Uh, they became a nation again. In, in effect, though, we're going to go toward the end of the, of the chapter, Ezekiel 37, verse 22. And notice what it is that the Lord is saying. He says, and I will make them one nation. Remember that there were the, the, the sticks that uh, represented uh, uh, Israel, the north, and the southern kingdom, and he brought them together. Uh, I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And of course, today, Israel is one nation. <clears throat> neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all of their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God." And David, my servant, shall be king over them. David, my servant, shall be king. Well, who is going to be king from the line of David? And that is connected always to the name of David. Jesus. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. What did Jesus say of himself? I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And of course from Jacob, by the way, remember that Jesus changed, uh, I said the Lord changed his name to Israel. <laughs> it was Jacob, which was, you know, a dirty, stinking thief. And I think that's what it kind of translates his name, you know, uh, Jacob, uh, <laughs> to Israel wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now don't confuse that with the prince that we see in the book of Ezekiel chapters. Uh, there toward the end, 46, 45, 46, and so on. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. There it is again, an everlasting covenant lasts forever. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. That is what we've been looking at now in these last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. 
And I will place them, multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. You said, I just heard that. I know. I just read it again. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I want to stop and just think about that statement that the Lord says there. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, it is just my humble opinion that the Lord is really excited about doing that about calling them his people once again, and that they will call him their God. Now, these aren't just words, folks. We're dealing with a God who said to them back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I didn't love you because you were greater than any nation or you know, mightier or whatever. I loved you because I loved you. <laughs> and I chose you. And I think it's a very special thing when God says that I will... be their God. I'll be their God. The very people I chose. After all of this time and after all of these years and all of these centuries and generations that have passed where all I've done is struggled with them and had to correct them and had to chastise them and had to punish them I can call them my people and they'll call me their God. And the heathen shall know, the nations, in other words, the goyim, the nations shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. I set them apart. They're mine. And I love them. I do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And so that time's coming. Consider that the Mosaic Covenant would find its fulfillment and its fruition in the Messianic Kingdom in that Israel would finally be God's people and he would be their God in a relationship that was to have existed under the Mosaic Covenant. So thousands and thousands of years before, it should have been. But it didn't come to its full fruition until it will come then. That covenant's purpose, by the way, was to show Israel how to live a holy life in a relationship with God. And to live a holy life in a relationship with God, that, that type of life is still, that's still valid under the new covenant, isn't it? How to live before God? How to live a, a holy life in a relationship with God in the midst of an unholy people, in the midst of, of an unholy world? Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 and 34 kind of remind us of that because it says in verse 33 but this shall be the covenant that I will make this is God speaking again this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts where was it written before for them we just talked about it earlier on tablets of stone written by the finger of God. He says, but now I'm going to put that law in their hearts. I'm going to write it <laughs> in their hearts. And will be their God. And there it is again. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. 
And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, does that apply to us as believers in Jesus Christ? If we came because someone declared the gospel of Jesus Christ to us? Yes. It does affect us the same way. What's happening to our lives when we surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ every day as believers? Every day, his, his law, his word, his, his precepts, his, his statutes, they're written in our hearts and in our minds. And, and we remember how much he loves us. And, and we now actually rejoice in the, in the very fact that this has happened to us. Does this make us better than Israel? No. <laughs> but it brings us to a place where we can actually say every day, which I, 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 I love to, to sing the song that says, Amazing Grace, <laughs> how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. Can you just hear the choirs of Israelites in the future when they see their God for the first time, when they see their Messiah and they see the one whom they pierced and they weep for they know who he is now or they will know when he shows himself. That will be their song to sing as well. Amazing grace that God would love us. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like us. All included. Jew and Gentile. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Well, as we said, that really ties into the new covenant as well because in Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In the very same way as Jeremiah expressed it. Who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Jew, Gentile, we have to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. So it relates to us, you see. Well, we got to move on here. So now when it came to the appointed feasts and the Sabbaths and the new moons that we see mentioned here in chapter 46, Israel would, would come together as we, as we saw last time and the, and the prince would participate with the people going in to worship and leaving whenever they did. That's verse 10. 
go back and see that, that, you know, that when they came to worship, he would be there to worship. The prince. I've said it's not David. It's because I would be clear if it was. Uh, it's not Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment, another reason uh, for that. And so looking at our text, if the prince desired, this prince, <laughs> we'll put quotation marks around that, this prince, <laughs> we'll get to know him more here as we go on toward the end. If the prince desired to make a free will offering, because that's what he was doing, you know, voluntary means a free will. You do it out of your will, from your heart, from your desires to worship and honor God. If the prince desired to make a free will offering of a burnt sacrifice, or of consecration, or a peace, or as it's called, a fellowship offering of, of thanksgiving, the east gate was to be open then specifically for this act of worship and closed when he would finish. The prince had a, pre, a peace offering to bring, they'd open the gate so he could come and offer it. And, and we wonder now how many times he's going to do that because he probably will do it a lot. And this was the only exception to that gate remaining closed throughout the normal six days. That gives us, again, as I said before, an indication that uh, life during the millennium is, is, is going to be something of uh, all kinds of activities going on in the world as we see today, except in a totally different realm because Jesus is going to be in control of everything. Jesus is going to be ruling all of the earth. And only at the end, toward the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, thousand years on the earth, everything's going to be different, very similar to the way the earth was at the creation. We're there to be life for a long, long time for many people. Babies being 100 years old, you know, it sounds kind of interesting, but I don't know, that's a lot of diapers for 100 years. I think I'd be careful with that one. But, you know, the, the life will be totally different and, and, and all, but um, things will be as they are in the sense because at the end of that thousand-year reign, the point I was going to make, the end of the thousand-year reign, the Lord's going to let the enemy loose for a time. He's going to be bound, but he's going to be loose for a time. Because once again, it comes down to this. It comes down to the choice that the heart has to make. Whether we'll, we'll choose Jesus or not choose Jesus. And it will come down to, the, to that, in a sense. Because we came to the love of Christ and everyone is given that opportunity to express their free moral agency. The Lord, in other words, doesn't make robots just to do his bidding. Because even the angels made choices. And some of those choices are what led to demonic and evil and wickedness, uh, demonic and wicked ways and evil and wickedness that we see today. 
So this prince is going to present his free will offerings in the same manner as he made offerings on the Sabbath. Let's go on now. In verse 13, it says of our text in Ezekiel, Thou shalt daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. Thou shalt prepare it every morning. And if you remember uh, last time I mentioned that when the offerings were first to be given back uh, in, in, in the time of Moses and, and, and following, that there were morning and evening offerings. But the only offerings we see here in the millennium are morning offerings. And why would that be? And I, and I mentioned last time, because the evening is, is uh, a picture of, of darkness. I mean, there's not going to be darkness in the millennium in that in a particular sense. But there was darkness in, in the world during the, you know, the, and there's darkness today in the world. So, you know, now that Jesus is on the throne, um, all the offerings are in the morning. It's day. We're children of the day. We're children of the light. Uh, that's one possibility, of course. And thou shalt prepare a meat offering for it every morning, the sixth part of an ephah and the third part of a hint of oil, to temper with the fine flour, a meat offering continually by a perpetual ordinance unto the Lord, everlasting ordinance. In other words, I'll keep doing it. And thus shall they prepare the lamb and the meat offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering. So overall, there are three occasions for sacrifice. Three occasions for sacrifice. We've already, we've already tackled the issue of why there's sacrifices during, during the millennial kingdom. It's, they're, do, they're done because of, uh, 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 as memorials of what Jesus Christ has already done so that the Jews will see, you know, that all of the things that the Lord gave them as far as all of the, uh, the uh, offerings from the Mosaic uh, covenants and so on and so forth and what it been taking place in the tabernacle as well as in all the temples. All the sacrifices pointed to Jesus. All the blood pointed to Jesus. All, all of the offerings pointed to Jesus. The showbread pointed to Jesus. The, the menorah and the, you know, everything pointed to Jesus. So everything is being done as that sense of, of, of memorial. It also was done for consecration purposes for even, uh, even on this earth, you know, things were to be consecrated for, for, uh, to make things clean. It was also to be given uh, the understanding that uh, there is a major difference between the sacred and the profane, the clean and the unclean. So all of these are some of the reasons that we talked about previously about the, um, uh, why the offerings continue on in the millennial kingdom, mostly for the Jewish people. That's another uh, thing. So the daily offerings that the prince, uh, it is in the daily offerings that the prince will lead the people. Each morning he will present a, a burnt offering of a one-year-old lamb without defect, accompanied by grain offering of one-sixth ephah flour and one-third hin of oil. And again, this was an offering under the Mosaic system that was to be made morning and evening, as I said, but here the offering is only in the morning. So the daily burnt offering will be offered to demonstrate the true commitment of God's people to him. You offer from the heart unto the Lord each and every day of your lives. Well, that's what we're supposed to do ourselves now. That's how we're supposed to get up every morning. We come and we offer ourselves unto the Lord. I mean, we're not making you know, all kinds of other offerings. We're just offering ourselves. 
Remember what it tells us in, 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 uh, in Romans chapter 12, that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable service. And that pertains to worship. That's our reasonable service of worship. So the meat or grain offering was, was to be a lasting ordinance among God's people and being a constant reminder of God's provision. So every time we offer an offering unto the Lord, we're saying, Lord, we're thankful. Thankful for everything that you give us. Thankful for the bread we eat. Thank you, thank you so for the water we drink. Thank you for everything that you've given us. Whatever it is that we have, we can give thanks. This is the offering that we are to give unto the Lord each and every day. Let's never forget the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 verse 19 when it says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If that's the case, then we ought to be giving thanks all the time to the Lord. You know, when you consider how we are to be kind and courteous to people, you know, if somebody does something for us, we want to say, thank you. We want to show our gratitude. Normally, we just do it when somebody does something for us. Oh, well, thank you so much. And we don't, uh, you know, follow them to their car and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, we just tell them once and we're, we're grateful. I mean, you know. I think of the... I think of the uh, the ten lepers that were that were cleansed by Jesus. Now, you do understand that you know the, being a leper in the time of Jesus was a death sentence. I mean, that, they were that were they were as good as dead to everybody, and Jesus cleansed ten of them, and nine of them are really grateful, but only one of them of the ten showed his gratitude, expressed his gratitude. Interesting, isn't it? We as believers, every day we have something to give thanks for. Every time you take a breath, you can give thanks to God. Every time that uh, your eyes blink, you can give thanks to God. But some people don't give thanks to God until what? until they're in trouble, and they, then first of all, they cry, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. You know? And then God does something. He did this with his people all the time. You know, they cry out, oh God, you know, we're in trouble. Yeah, well, I know you're in trouble because you know, I keep telling you I'm with you, but you don't want to be with me. But then you get in trouble, then you come to me. Okay, so then he, he heals them, or he helps them, or he delivers them, and then they give them thanks for a little while, and they go on and go back to doing what they were doing. <laughs> we're a funny people, aren't we? <laughs> Jew and Gentile, we're all funny. Just not funny, haha, just kind of like weird. Okay. Because, I mean, God is so good to us. Our gratitude should be great to the Lord. Always should be great. Okay, the next portion of this chapter, I better move on here because we want to finish this chapter tonight. We do. So the next portion of this chapter deals with the inheritance of the prince's property, an inheritance that will be strictly governed in Messiah's kingdom. Let's look at verses 60 through 18. Thus saith the Lord God, if the prince give a gift unto any of his sons, interesting, he has sons. And by the way, if you go back to what we've studied previously to, uh, previous to this, in chapter 46, the prince actually offers worship unto God. So, that means this really can't be Jesus because he's the one to be worshipped. And, and then, of course, uh, this prince has a family. He has sons. 
Now, some have said, well, we're all sons of God. Well, yeah, but who are the servants then if, we all have, if, if, if we're all the sons of God? Eh, it's a little kind of a sticky wicket there. Okay, so the inheritance thereof shall be his sons. It shall be their possession by inheritance. But if he give a gift of his inheritance to one of his servants, notice, then it shall be his to the year of liberty, which is, by the way, the jubilee. And after it shall return to the prince, but his inheritance shall be his sons for them. Moreover, the prince shall not take of the people's inheritance by oppression to thrust them out of their possession, but he shall give his sons inheritance out of his own possession that my people be not scattered every man from his possession. So inheritance was always extremely important to the Israelite. Many laws were established to assure and to guarantee that a, an Israelite retained family property. Always very important in, 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 the, uh, in the Jewish culture that uh, family property was to be part and parcel of all the inheritance that was to be given. Uh, and that very same concept will continue in the Messianic kingdom, at least in the case of the prince. Any inheritance given to one of his sons would remain with his son's descendants. That's what it says in verse 16. It is to remain in the family of the prince. Now, the prince may give property to a servant, but a servant can only keep it until the year of Jubilee, which is every 50th year. If you go back and look at the, the year of Jubilee, it's every 50 years. So there's 49 years that go by, and then the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Well, during the year of Jubilee, then, the servant must return the property to the, to the prince or his descendants. And in the year of Jubilee, the land is to revert back to the prince. Now, the prince is not to take any of the people's property. That's verse 18. He's not to confiscate. He's not to steal the property of other citizens, uh, as so many leaders had done through the centuries, even in Israel. Even in Israel, they would take the people's lands. Think about Micah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Micah 2, 1 through 3. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and, they take, and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. And they were oppressing, by the way, their own people. Does that still happen today? Man, look at some of these nations that are so, uh, I mean, so backwards. Yet the leadership of these nations are, are living high on the hog. Well, I know the hog, you know, not, not kosher, but, but they're living high on the hog, you know. And, and it's really kind of sad to see those things happen. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which you shall not remove your necks, neither shall you go haughtily or arrogantly, for this time is evil. So all of this is a clear reminder of the believer's inheritance, the, the wonderful inheritance the Lord promises to all who trust in Jesus Christ. For us, it is, it is for us to give thanks to God for what he has already provided for us as an inheritance to all who believe. Listen to what the Word of God says about the inheritance believers will receive. And I'm only giving you just a few verses of Scripture because of time. But Acts 20, verse 32, Paul is speaking. 
Here, and he says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God. And speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified, all them that are set apart for God, all them that are set apart in Jesus Christ. Those of you that are set apart in God, in Christ, will have a part in this inheritance. From this particular standpoint, we are the sons of God. And this is what some this, this is something that that uh, that Jesus uh, to Saul of Tarsus was saying to him when he was calling him on the road to Damascus, and and here again Paul I say again because I think I quoted this last week or the week before, but here in in Acts chapter twenty six when Paul is before King Agrippa he's giving his testimony to this king about what Christ had done to him when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Uh, we'll just start in verse 15 of Acts 26. It says, and I said, who art thou, Lord? I mean, Paul is, is, you know, knocked to the ground. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. What does that tell you? Well, it, it, it tells us that, you know, when, when, when he was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jews who had, who had turned to the Messiah. And in effect, what Jesus was saying is, you're not persecuting them as much as you're persecuting me. If you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. And he says, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister, a servant, and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in, which, in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the, from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. So God is saying, uh, the Lord is saying, Jesus is saying to, to Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. What a testimony Paul is giving to, uh, to, to Agrippa. He says, hey, listen, it isn't just to those, those Jews that I was persecuting. Man, God is serious, man. He created the whole world. He created all of us, Jew and Gentile, and, and they need Jesus too. Getting back to inheritance, Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well, here we go again. We are sons of God if we are believers in Jesus Christ. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. What a, what a beautiful, uh, beautiful promise that is, that we are heirs with all those who are believers in Jesus Christ and join heirs with Jesus himself. Peter also chimes in on this issue of inheritance when he says in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his Abundant mercy hath begotten us again. In other words, he has made us born again unto a lively living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible 
and undefiled. It is an inheritance that will never be defiled in any way, shape, or form. It will never be corrupted in any fashion. And it will not fade away. He says, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven. Stop and think about that for just one second, because I can't be too long, because we've we got to get finished. But think about that. Something reserved in heaven for you. Jesus had talked about treasures. A lot of people try to lay up treasures here on this earth. You know, we try to make good investments in life. Maybe these investments will pay off along the way. Maybe, you know, you know the market uh, or whatever you might consider to be a, a sure thing. Most of the things that happen on this, who are in this world are not this, as sure a thing as we'd like them to be. But people are so concerned about laying up treasures on earth. And it was Jesus who said, don't lay up treasures on earth where, where moth and rust can destroy or thieves can break in and steal. He said, lay up your treasures in heaven where those things can't touch it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But then he says, oh, and by the way, there's an inheritance for you. It's coming from me. And it's not going to be corrupted. It's not going to be defiled in any way. And it won't fade away. And it's reserved in heaven just for you. Wow. That's even better in the stock market, isn't it? Yeah, say yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, say yes. <laughs> Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And guess what? We're living in the last time. So that's pretty close. Well, time does not permit us uh, to see the other passages that pertain to our inheritance in Christ. But they are equally significant. There's a lot of them. There's a few in the book of Galatians, Colossians, where he mentions inheritance or being an heir. Wonderful passages. Look them up. The last section now of this chapter deals with the kitchens of the priests. Let's read it, verse 19. Yeah, the priests had kitchens. Making you hungry yet? Make me hungry. <laughs> After he brought me through the entry, which was at the, at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which looked toward the north, and behold, there was a place on the two sides westward. Then said he unto me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the meat offering. Which Remember, the meat offering is the grain offering, that they bear them not out into the utter court to sanctify the people. So they're, they're, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, then he brought me forth into the utter court, which is the outer court, and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And behold, in every corner of the court there was a court. In the four corners of the court, there were courts joined of 40 cubits long and 30 broad. These four corners were of one measure. And there was a row of building round about in them, round about them four, and it was made with boiling places under the rows uh, round about. And then said he unto me, These are the places of them that boil, where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifice of the people. 
I, I think sometimes of the temples and even uh, outside of the sanctuary, you know, where the sacrifices were made by fire. <laughs> and uh, I'm not saying this because I'm hungry, okay, folks, I'm just, but I'm saying this because, you know, it, it must, it, it, it the, the, the smells in this place, I mean, the meat offerings, the, you know, the, the burnt offerings that they, they, they would rise unto the Lord, the fat offerings, they, you know, the fat belonged to the Lord, by the way, you know, and, and it was just, uh, you know, wow. Maybe I am hungry. I think that's what, it's, that's what got me to think that way. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm, we're almost done. So, but, it, but see, those are the things that we don't really kind of picture sometimes. But this is really important for us as we're coming to, to the end of this particular chapter. The rooms of this building face north. I want to, as a matter of fact, I'm going to show you. Have we gotten there yet? No, we haven't got there yet. Don't, don't show it yet. <laughs> the, the, the rooms of this building that we're dealing with that were facing north. It was a, uh, let, let me go back a step here. There was an entrance of a building that contained the rooms where the priests ate their most holy offerings and changed their garments. Remember where they changed the garments? They had to change their garments after they were inside the inner court and, you know, for them to minister to the people outside. That had changed. That's where it was. But it was also there, and you'll see in just a moment, uh, where these rooms were where they ate the offerings because that, that's what they were commanded to do. And uh, it's here that the angelic messenger showed the prophet uh, Ezekiel the place at the end of these sacred rooms where the priests would cook guilt offerings and sin offerings. That's verse 20, by the way. And here they also baked the meat or the grain offerings and ate all of the offerings. And this way the priests would not have to take these offerings into the outer court to cook them and so uh, consecrate the people. So anyway, there's a chart up here. Let me see if I have my pointer. Yeah, somewhere. Oh, here it is. Okay, so, uh, is it working today? Kind of, sort of, okay. All right, so. That's the outer kitchens, the corners. Those are the four corners. So four corners, I'm sorry, microphone. So you see the okay, outer kitchens. And then the other places that they're talking about are right here in this area here, the kitchen and the priest's uh, rooms there are the ones that were facing north, okay? So those are the ones here. But these are the, these are the four corners and these are the kitchens where they were uh, to do all of this cooking and, and boiling uh, so that they could also have this, this food. So these are the, they're, they're the four kitchens and the four corners of the outer court, each forming a court in itself. Each of them were 40 by 30 cubits, which means that they were 70 feet long and 52.5 feet wide. So that's pretty good size. And there's a stone ledge around the inside of each room under which the fireplaces are built. And again, the purpose of these kitchens will, uh, will be, and I, again, we're looking at the future, they will be to provide a place where the temple assistants, who are the Levites, can cook the sacrifices offered by the people. So the very mention of kitchens and meals at the temple reminds us of our need for Christ-centered fellowship. The meat was not only to be eaten by the priests, the meat was also to be eaten by the people. 
There are certain parts of the meat, certain parts of this to be eaten by the people together. It was to be a fellowship together. This is the understanding of all of this. Some of our most joyous and our fulfilling times of fellowship on this earth have been, are, and will be in the company of other believers in Jesus Christ. And this type of fellowship gives indication that a more spiritual fellowship in Christ is to be sought with like-minded believers. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, he said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So fellowship in Christ is so important because where we gather in his name, he comes, he's there, which means that he's here now because we came to be in fellowship one with another and there's obviously two or three here, more actually. <laughs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> but I have to tell you, I, I've been at, uh, back when we first started 30 some years ago. There were times when we'd have a, a Wednesday night meeting and there were three of us. And I said, okay, we're two or three are gathered. We're here. Let's do it. And the Lord was there, and even if there were two. And by the way, when you pray tonight by yourself, he's there too. Don't forget that. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they continue steadfastly, it says. Now this, of course, is at Pentecost. And after Pentecost, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So there's breaking of bread. I mean, you've got to eat something, right? I mean, it's, it's part of the fellowship, you know. It's, it's, uh, I think that's why many years ago they used to call us Calvary Chapel, not Calvary Chapel. That we ate too many things. Uh, too many meals. No, just kidding. Uh, Verse 43, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. I, I, I'm telling you this and reading this on because we need to understand that it isn't just a matter of fellowshipping. It's a matter of seeing God do a great work in our midst. And I, and I have to tell you, in, in 34 years of pastoral ministry, it's been a blessing to see how God has done some wonderful things in people's lives. We gather together, we sing songs, we, we pray for one another, and then all of a sudden the Lord just comes and he touches people's hearts. We've seen wonderful healings take place. We've seen things that have happened and it continues on. And, and we're thankful to, for that because God says, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm there. And all that believed were together and had all things in common or had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, that first day he added 3,000. That's a, quite a fellowship right there. Let's close with 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. John, who was privy to many of the things that the Lord Jesus had done, along with James and Peter, understood well this issue of fellowship. He writes in 1 John 1, verse 5, This then is the message 
which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Isn't that special? That if we say that we fellowship with God, with the Lord, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we're not walking with the Lord, we're not walking with anyone else either. And so see the importance of what he says when he says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk with one another and we fellowship with one another because he is in the midst of us all as believers in Jesus Christ. So I become a little leery of those that always say, well, you know, I, I know God and I worship God in my own way. Well, you can't worship God in your own way. You need to worship God his way. <laughs> and his way is that we have fellowship one with another. We worship God his way when he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but encourage one another. Exhort one another while it is day. Exhort one another because the Lord is coming back very shortly. So there's still, there's still time to fellowship, folks, and to appreciate the fellowship of the saints together until Jesus comes.